Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash BGM podcast. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash BGM podcast. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash BGM podcast for your free audiobook. Welcome to episode 58 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie. I'm your host. This episode is called Filmmaking, Forward Comics, Loot Crate, and X-Files. Four segments, so it's a fully packed episode. In segment one, we interview Victoria Mahoney. Victoria is a filmmaker and an actress, and she talks to us about her career, her experience as a woman of color in the film industry, and how the film industry has sort of relegated backward over the last 20 years as opposed to progressing forward today in 2016. And we also talk about the Oscars and the lack of diversity that we're just continually seeing from year to year. A lot of great insight about her work with other great filmmakers such as Ava DuVernay. In our second segment, we interview Jerome Walford. Jerome is the owner and founder of Forward Comics. It's his own publishing company, and he distributes many comics, including his own, where you may know him best from Nowhere Man. Well, Jerome's got a new project out called Guan, and he's allowing independent creatives to allow their works to be seen and to highlight them in the publishing industry. In that segment, I have my co-host, Joelle Monique, also interviewing Jerome. In our third segment, we welcome new BGN co-host, Jacqueline Coley, who traveled to PAX South to interview Bob Holden. Bob Holden is the VP of Category Management for Loot Crate. So Loot Crate, you may be pretty familiar with those products. He talks about the distribution, the business model behind Loot Crate, and also traveling to different conventions throughout the city and meeting face-to-face with consumers and how that's very important for their brand. And our fourth segment, it's all about X-Files. X-Files recently premiered. We're very excited about it. So I brought on co-hosts Mel, also Ashley from Graveyard Shift Sisters makes an appearance, and two new co-hosts, Talia and Karan, and we talk about everything from seasons one through nine, also the last two new episodes that recently premiered, what we hope to expect from the series, things that we liked, things that we didn't like, and just overall our thoughts and feelings towards the new X-Files. It's very exciting for all of us, and if you haven't done so already, if you do like to live tweet, join us. We use the hashtag DatX on Twitter, 
So join us on Twitter with DatX. It's going to be fun. So thanks for, for tuning into this episode, and I hope you guys enjoy it. BGN number 58, coming at you. Victoria Mahoney developed her debut feature film, Yelling to the Sky, through the Directors and Screenwriters Sundance Institute Labs, and was named an Auberbach Fellow, Annenberg Fellow, Cinereach Fellow, Maryland Fellow, and IFP Narrative Lab Fellow. She was named one of 25 New Faces of Independent Film by Filmmaker Magazine, one of Shadow and Axe and IndieWire's filmmakers to watch, and one of the three filmmakers to watch in Elle Magazine's Women in Hollywood issue. The film Yelling to the Sky starred actresses Zoe Kravitz and Gabourey Sidibe. Victoria is also an actress known for roles in Legally Blonde and Seinfeld. Welcome to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. I'm very excited to have an amazing guest on this show. I have Victoria Mahoney. She is a filmmaker and actress, and she's here to talk to us about her career, about the state of the industry, and gonna talk a little bit about what's happening with the Academy Awards, the lack of diversity that we've noticed. So first of all, Victoria, thank you so much for coming on tonight and being a part of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Thank you, Jamie. I value being here and I really, really respect what you and Lauren are doing. It's incredibly important. And as I said just you know earlier, it's really, I love how you two are in on the joke and you just seem to have fun with the way that you're going about it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm an admirer of yours. I'm so glad that you and I, we had connected on Twitter. And when I noticed that you had followed the Black Girl Nerds account, I had just watched Yelling to the Sky. So I was just like, oh, my God, the director of the movies following Black Girl Nerds. So I was, yeah, I was fangirling when that happened. So tell us a little bit about your, your film, Yelling to the Sky. Brilliant film, your debut feature film at that. Um, and it dealt with issues of domestic abuse. What was the inspiration behind this story and why was this particular story important for you to tell? Well, first, I, I will knock the Mutual Admiration Society out the way and also say the reason I had tapped into Black Girl Nerds was because of the name. <laughs> and um I mean, I saw that and it was like a rainbow just cast over my head. I just thought, oh, it was Aww. so exciting. And um and it says everything you need it to say. And um I, I dig that it was in the same time frame that you were watching the film. So the topic why the domestic abuse? Well, it was something that was very real in my household, but it, you know, come to find out it was real in many households in my neighborhood, and it still is in the neighborhood I live, you know, doesn't matter the zip code. So it's from Brentwood, New York to Brentwood, California, you know, from South Pasadena to downtown to Harlem to Watts to wherever. It's been an issue, Beverly Hills and on. So what's fascinating is that a lot of it went undiscussed, and that's what was one of the things that people had trouble with in the film, and one of the things I fought most for was because we weren't sitting around as kids. No one sat us down to talk about, you know, any aspect of difficulty. That wasn't the thing. Like, now parents sit down and ask kids if they like two different vegetables and, you know, if their stomach hurts after or not. There's a very, there's so much communication. Well, when I was a kid, it wasn't, and so there were things like um my father had hit my mother one night and my mother was pregnant with me. So there are three of us in a row. And uh, so one child was two, one child was one, and then I was in my mother's belly. 
my mother called the police. The police showed up and they looked at my mother and they saw a mark on her face and they were just like livid. Like, we're going to get them. We're going to, don't worry, you're safe. And they were incredibly just, you know, vigorous and, and um, galvanized to, to help her. And then uh, they said, where is he? And my mother pointed to the bedroom. They went in the bedroom and saw my father. And my mother and father are two different colors. And um, <laughs> when they saw my father, they uh, they talked to him for a minute. And then they came back out and asked my mother in the middle of the winter, February, you know, a cold, stark winter in mm. New York while she was pregnant to take the two sisters and walk around the block. My two sisters. So her two daughters and her belly and walk around the block for a while to let him cool off. Stuff like that was really average. That was normal. And that's what you want expected when you called for help. So there was nowhere for my mother to go talk to anyone about that because the people that she called to help, there was nowhere that anyone could get help. And so what I was fascinated by was the silence of violence. And also, I wanted to tell it from a child's point of a young person's point of view, as in it's not solved and fixed. Like me as an adult, in hindsight, I can communicate aspects of that experience with you. But as a kid, None of it was real. It was all bizarre. What happened? Did that happen? Erasing things on purpose just to cope, you know, and then these are also primary caregivers. So it's an exceptionally complex and layered issue that doesn't have one pat answer. And as we all know, there are dynamics for both individuals and why they identify and bond and what they're bonded in and why that seems to reoccur. And it does seem to have this domino effect when it comes to domestic abuse, where it affects everybody that's in those surroundings, whether you're directly involved with the abuse itself or even indirectly, somehow you're affected by being in that situation. I feel like you captured a lot of that in the movie. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that people, you know, have evaluated in in numerous forms is that you know, our DNA, physiological DNA, then there's the spiritual DNA. And there are people who believe that the spiritual DNA of a child is changed when they experience or witness violent physical violence. And then that, of course, is then extended into verbal abuse as well and sexual abuse and onward. But the spiritual DNA of a child is altered when they witness domestic abuse mm. and when they experience physical, sexual or um, verbal abuse. And that was fascinating to me, again, because no one was talking about it. And and then for me, it's just as basic as the way that I tell stories is I just sort of an old school, like, you know, you write stories on the wall in the cave and then that's what you leave behind. And I'm not there to judge it. I'm not there to say this is right or this is wrong or this is good or this is bad. I'm only meant to reflect what is occurring in my time and space while I'm alive. Sometimes, you know, there's a big thing in America to have things answered. Well, did she get better? Where did she go? It's like, well, I don't know. You know, we don't know. When we were a kid, my mother was missing for a year. We didn't know until we were grownups where she went. So to have told where she went when I was in a story about a 17-year-old would be a lie. We didn't know where she went. That was the exact point of most of the film. Wow. I wanted to switch gears and talk about your career a little bit. You, as a black woman working in the film industry, I'm sure have had a lot of experiences with gatekeeping. There's such a large disparity among black women directors compared to even black men directors. First of all, why do you think that is? And do you see any sort of progression happening, any sort of shift that has happened at least within the last few years compared to, say, 20, 30 years ago? 
Okay, so there are a few questions in there and help me out later if I don't answer them all. Why do I think there's a disparity is because then we go, so we're dealing with gender politics and then we're dealing with racial politics and the two do not meet. (laughs) (laughs) And so you hear people out in the world talking about women, 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 and then you're like, but you don't have one woman of color on your goddamn panel or one woman of color in that entire roster of films that you're speaking about. You don't have a woman of color, you know as an advisor on your board that's helping women or, you know, on and on and on and on and on. So then when you get to the color, person of color issue, it somehow seems to go towards men. The topic is of men and the men are hired more because then you go into the gender. So it's a fascinating circumstance for those of us living it because Mm -hmm. we really, 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 are invisible. And and I'm not saying that like it's um, a cute little catchword. I'm telling you that we have walked through the industry completely invisible. When they come calling for women, they're not calling for women of color. When they come calling for black folks, they are calling for women, women of color. So what I have observed, though, so now I'm going to move into the second part of your question is, um, first, there's a couple things in that. And there was a year that um, when Ava, myself, I don't think Gina's film was out then. Tina Mabry's film was right near us. There was there were a whole slew. D, there was a whole bunch of us that we had films out. You know, but it was like, oh, okay, that's nice. Then the following year, there were a couple of brothers that had films out, and there were memes made. And these, it was just like this massive, massive, massive thing. It was just like, right. yeah, all right. But like, you know, there were nine women with feature films out last year. Nobody put together a poster that was clapping, you know, for us, like, it was just radio silence. So now the great thing about that is if you're built from this stuff, if you're wired to use that as gasoline and petrol, it's great. It's fine. It is, you know, it's okay. Cause it is what it is and we can't change it at the moment. But the bad news is there are so many talented people who do not shapeshift that energy into petrol and they pack their bags and leave. So then we have this exodus of incredible talent decade after decade after decade after decade because people look up and see there's no space for me. I'm not counted on either side of any line. No one is ticking the box. No one's like reaching out and saying, hey, how you doing? And meet this person. And can we mentor you? And pop, 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 go over here. And when you walk in there, say this, do this and don't do that. And then, da, 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 da. And then, you know, there's none of that. There's none of that. None. Zero. I'm telling you. So the good news is now there is a bit of noise and the noise has woken up a couple people who I guess... <laughs> missed the memo for the past 88 years but 88 years in you know the particular circumstance and then 100 years plus of film and tv so now i really there's like this huge thing of like get us one and then you know one witch both (laughs) so now it's like oh now we're a commodity you know black women women of color asian women latin women indigenous women now it's like ooh, two for one pretty cool you know and that financing producing repping executive studio and all of that shit that now they're just like oh two for one is good when you're asking if i see a shift i don't see a shift in the employment part of it i see a mm. shift in the please come meet us part whereas before it was like oh my god why do i have to take this meeting it was just like you know you had to bleed tooth and nail and just get someone 
to take a meeting with you and they barely ever knew your last name. You knew they didn't Google you. You know, they didn't watch a film. You know, they didn't read a spec script. You know, they didn't even give a shit. And they just take, you know, like clicking the thing to say, waiting, counting time to say, I met them fine. Now there's this great sort of like incoming circumstance that's happening. We're getting the incoming calls now. It's like so-and-so wants to meet you. 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 That's the shift. But again, we're just sitting in rooms talking. This isn't, um, there's not actual deals being made. Well, I don't see a massive thrust of employment in a way that I can say that there's a shift. I can say that a couple of us who have been bleeding, you know, banging hard, we've set things in motion and the things we've set in motion, those people who are sort of wide awake and curious in the first place, you know, whether that's the Ava DuVernay's, of course, is Michael Malley, who's interesting and uh, wide awake. And, you know, but there, there are a couple of people who were, they're not really, it's not about, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to lose my job. It's about, I really, really, really am interested in another point of view here. Wow. The reason why I ask about a shift now, as opposed to 20, 30 years ago, is because 20, 30 years ago, it did seem like there were more films by black directors and even black women filmmakers than what I'm seeing now. Because I remember films like Just Another Girl on the IRT by mm-hmm. Leslie Harris and Watermelon Woman by Cheryl Dunye and Julie Love Dash's Julie, Daughter of the yeah. Dust. So it just felt and like there, and all, yeah. all of them. Yeah. And that there were just more black independent movies being made and produced and being greenlit by these studios. But now, you know, fast forward 2016, it just feels like it's few and far between. Do you agree? Disagree? Well, there are a couple of factors that are shocking. And, you know, one of the biggest things that has thrown my peer group and I off was new platform came into the game and we thought, yay, Wild Wild West. And they're not going to live by the same rules that studio films and indie film financers and American TV network execs. You know, he thought, oh, okay, they're going to do what they want. They don't have to abide by the laws of um, segregation. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, we're just all like, woohoo. And for like five seconds, one or two new platform spots built their back on diversity, whether it was women or people of color. And then the next lineup of shows, everything was bought. You couldn't find one woman or one person of color in any, any of the shows that were bought. And then the same with the, if someone went to pitch a movie, if you went to pitch a TV show, new platform or to pitch a movie, the numbers are not there for women of color directors. And I don't think that I'm not sure if they're there for men of color. What is happening that's kind of cool at Sundance just now is that a couple of the new platform spots made great purchases. That's cool. But what has to happen is on the ground level. People have to take their dollar and hand it over to in the development and the pre-production principal and post stage, not where it's like you go out, you know, burn your ass to the ground. You could raise two bucks and it's something we could buy. Great. So that's one thing that is a bit shocking and, and we, it needs to be leveled out. And then the other thing about back in the day versus now, what I believe has been sort of a difficulty is everyone 
is getting their ass whooped in different ways. And it's so it was for many, many, many years for whatever, 100 years. It's been difficult for any marginalized storyteller to link arms and storm the stage. It's usually a, such a severe battle to survive that most people were coping. And it wasn't this concept of if we link arms, we can thrive. Mm-hmm. If I'm on my own, I'm just fighting to survive. There wasn't that maybe I don't know. And it doesn't mean also I'm not um, everyone that we just spoke about it. I particularly respect and they guided my inspiration and they're incredibly crucial to me. So I'm not saying that, that any of these in, individuals were part of this. I'm saying in the history of film, it's the circumstance in film and television, the circumstance has been set up that as an individual, you're just you can't even look up to see the forest for the trees. So what has happened that I observe really right now was two words, Ava DuVernay. And her whole shit is about we, 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 we. Like she does not want to stand in a room alone. She doesn't want to stand at a party alone. She doesn't want to stand in a set alone. She doesn't want to be the only in any environment of storytelling or taking a plane ride or, you know, (laughs) whatever, like she doesn't want to be the only, and all of us have that, but she is, has transformed that into a verb. So all know, like it just came out that she's hiring all women for her TV show. No one in the history of time has ever been that fucking badass. No one, no one, no one, no one has even like stepped. Also, she's equipped in a way that she has the infrastructure. So that right. wasn't there for other people. And no one has actually gotten to some degree. A woman of color hasn't actually been able to step to where she stepped and to say what she's saying and to say, you know, and that I'm doing this. And would it be cool if we just hire women directors? Right. So it's really tricky. So what she's doing is she's trained all of us to look out for each other. And I, I think that awareness that we will only survive five years, three years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and then the generations to come if there are many. And in that many, we keep employing each other. I just think that's part of the shift now and why it disappeared in the first place is it's been always disappearing. It's like nobody's looking, nobody has been historically looking for marginalized storytellers. So every now and again, when there's a burst in a bubble, it's fine, but no one was harvesting and cultivating and nourishing that talent for the long tail. So yeah, it would die just like a runner in a race. When you mentioned the, the we, you know, mentality and in the way that Ava presents herself with having a collective around her, is it like that in general for black women directors in Hollywood that you guys all kind of look out for each other and, if there's an opportunity, you're like, oh, well, hey, call this person and that person. Do you find that you're more of a close-knit network because there's so few of you in the in the industry? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, Ava's put more food on my table than anyone in the entire film industry of anyone I know. And that's like, so people call her. She's great. You know, she's like, I'm not the only one. And then they're like, name, name some others. And she does. And thank goodness, right, that it's Ava and she has a laundry list off the top of her head. She doesn't have to go on her phone. She could just rattle them all off. Yeah. So I feel like um, it, it does come back to a sense of, you know, it's it's some form of survival and self-preservation that the way we care and regard and nourish each other and our 
you know, like the way we light up when we see each other in a room, if it's in mm. a in lobby or in a, you know, walking down the street or anywhere, it, there's a something, it has so much to do with this very quiet thing. And it, it's when you stand somewhere and you are the only one in that room and have been for the last 30 rooms that you were in for the past six months, the past six years, past 12 years, like whatever that feels like to often step in a room and just sort of have not have a reflection of yourself. When someone comes through the joy of just seeing that they got through, it actually isn't that about oneself anymore. It's this delight that, oh, you're still here. And oh, you managed to break through hundreds of years issues, you know, racism and sexism that prevent you from flourishing, but you're still standing. And there's this really wonderful, very silent thing that a lot of people know and consider to be the nod. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, but with us, we're quite effusive. A lot of us are not really quiet in the way we live. Like, you know, that means if we go to a movie together, when we stand out on the curb and the way we're talking about it, like we're animated, we're animated people. So when we see each other in the room, it's as animated as everything else that we're passionate about. And it's not a secret to anyone around us, the regard and affinity that we have for survival. That's beautiful. And then just seeing that other person gives hope that you can be there too, that you can be in those footsteps. So that's awesome. Yeah. It's funny because sometimes I feel like hope is a luxury that I've never really been able. It's not an item on the shelf and, you know, it's not been... That wasn't a tree planted in my yard. What is fascinating, though, is because what happens with hope is that it means something may occur, right? Mm -hmm. But the truth is, if I'm doing what I'm doing, and it's only for something that may occur to me, something I may get at the end, I actually would never, ever, 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 ever have been able to survive this type of exclusion. But for me, stepping out and making it more macro, and my concern is about all the filmmakers coming up behind me, writers, directors, and DPs. So my concern, deep, deep, deep concern about them having a path and them having it just a bit less difficult, (laughs) (laughs) you know, just, and it's, and what we're fighting for really is just, you know, equal pay equals resources to finance our projects, equal representation, equal visibility, equal criticism in the critical realm for our film. So it's not just like two people out in the woods that, you know, but everyone else is ignoring our our work or, you know, just an equal playing field, right? But I can't have a hope about it being something. The hope can't be that at the end of this, I'm going to get something. There's no, there's no way that would carry me through the, the hell nights of, you know, the reality of the world we live in. But when I am consumed by this need to leave place markers for others, and that's my only focus, then I'm good. You know, it doesn't, there's no sense of, you know what it does? It strips away illusion. Illusions are really dangerous when we're dealing with systemic issues. Well, speaking of systemic issues, I wanted to get your opinion about the Academy Awards fiasco and and the problems that it's had over the years. Do you think that the recent statements that were put out by Cheryl Boone Isaac about the membership changes and the strives for diversity will, in fact, foster change? (laughs) Uh, Okay, (laughs) so what I feel like, what I observe 
is that there are bigger issues that begin before the Oscars are the end of the road. So the entire year prior, again, we go back to studio chiefs, diversity within studio chiefs, diversity within the executive realm of film and television, the diversity within showrunners, the diversity within writers, the diversity within directors, the diversity who's hired, the diversity within agents and managers repping directors and writers and um, actors of color, right? So the diversity in all these realms, and also I really do want to say, because we're speaking, you know, in regard to your podcast, but I do want to say that this thing that they keep talking about, which I really, I personally, I'm so sick of it. Like I've lived it and we live it. And I just feel like I could care less in a way that if it isn't practical and real, I don't care. Mm. I really don't care. I don't care. I'm watching so many people pat themselves on the back. If I see one more goddamn panel with women's organizations where they're all sitting around in their cute little <laughs> outfits, expensive lunches, and you're just like, there are a hundred women, two tables over, who can't pay their health insurance. They can't, like, you know, get shoes for their kids for whatever, soccer. I don't know. But it's just this fascinating thing that there's so much talk, and I'm really just sick of it. And I just, in a way that I, I only want to participate in the solution and the shift. So right. shift will come with the very beginning, the nexus point of employment, and then from there. So who's employing? Who isn't employing? Right? Right. Who's repping? Who isn't repping? One thing that bothered me, too, about this whole idea that people, like you said, patting themselves on the back and the Hollywood Reporter had a cover of Cheryl Boone Isaacs, and I don't remember the other woman that was on the cover with her. Yeah, and they very... never mentioned the Oscar So White creator. Yeah, they had the Oscar So White reference in the article, and they had these very pleased look on their faces as if they had accomplished some major feat, but completely erased yet another black woman, April Rain, who created that hashtag. Yeah. Even in the midst of trying to help diversity and, and help to diversify bringing in women of color and people of color in the Academy Awards with these membership changes, they, they still make these, they still erase women. But do you feel like this is something where we need to figure out ways to do this from like a sort of kind of like the ground level up, like from a grassroots level? Well, I feel like it's a very, yes. But I don't know, like, because we're dealing with corporations and we're dealing yeah. with, um, for real, corporations that own vodkas. They own booze, one. Then the other one owns refrigerators. The other one's radios. Like, they're not, you know, the corporations, what they're doing, you know, that have own that have now own these studios, they're not, let's tell some great stories with some unique visionaries isn't the initial chase. So we have to keep that in perspective, that that shifted a long time ago, like that American cinema where there was a high regard for storytelling and storytellers, that shifted. And it may swing back, but it does not exist now. It is, talk about illusions. That's the greatest illusion of all time. And indie film is one of the bigger illusions. I mean, indie film is, is as corporate and manufactured and goodness. It's so, it's, they're just baby, they're baby studios. Baby films. mainstream it's, films. It's baby mainstream. <laughs> wow. That's it's true. Funny. I mean, because yeah. like you think about a lot of the independent films that are backed by studios, like Lionsgate backs a lot of indie films. And I mean, that's a big, huge corporation. Focus and then, features. 
And then most of the miners that were really looking for tourism and unique storytelling, they all got bought by the majors back in the day. And then one by one, coincidentally, each of those indie houses went chapter 11. And no one has written an article yet about that. All those indie houses were providing resources and a safe haven and distribution for and a massive amount of marginalized storytellers with really great visions, like burning it down. And mm. all those houses were bought one by one by one by one. And then now you have a couple of places. And then, but still, you know, these top tier festivals, like for a while, you could go up to a top tier festival back in the day with like, you know, a suitcase and a one way ticket. And you could you know, find your way around and get into a room with someone. And, and if your shit was good, you could hawk it. Now, sorry, then that shifted to where it was like one of the major, major agencies had to rep your film going up to the top tier festival, right? Then it now is three. It's like two or three of the hugest agencies in the world are repping some of these films that are supposed to be indies going up to these festivals and you just think, wait a minute, so what does the person in Idaho do? What does the person from Hong Kong that doesn't know anybody do? What does the person from Watts or, you know, like Cabrini Greens doesn't exist anymore. But like, where are those kids actually? Like, so what happens if a kid made a film in their backyard and they just want to show up at one of these festivals, but they don't have the top tier reps and the, you know, high wattage distribution agent and all that shit. You're asked out. So, Again, it's like we have to begin by the reality of the world we landed in. So that all those sweet songs are over. They don't they're not real now. <laughs> wow. And what is real, though, is that you could make a film in your backyard. Still, you right. can make it with really great tools. You can make it with your friends and some people in your neighborhood. And you could load that shit onto the Internet by yourself without a studio, without a rep, without a distributor, without financiers. And that is really special. That's going to change that. Like, that's really the change of play. That is so true. I mean, there are YouTube stars that are making just as much as Hollywood actors or more. (laughs) Ridiculous. And also the purchasing power. So the, you know, the amount of people who are going to them because they're influencers. So the amount of people who are going to them, establishment people, to get them, the influencers, to say something about their product or their whatever it is, is really fascinating how that's, and that's exactly the shift. But there was another thing that you mentioned that I want to tap on. There's something else that I is always tricky for me in this discussion is because I am speaking about my own personal experience. And the only reason I try to keep it to that is I don't really have a valid, there's no reason I should speak on anyone else's experience. But when I talk often and I'm asked questions in regards to women of color and film, I really want to always make sure that I am inclusive of marginalized people overall so that right. uh, my fight isn't just me, Victoria and women of color. You know, I'm deeply concerned about handicapable. I'm deeply concerned about mm. LGBTQ community. I'm deeply right. concerned about indigenous filmmakers who, you know, are not regarded in the they realm. They really of, get the short, of the short end of the stick. Film. Oh yeah. Big time. Yeah. And uh, Asian filmmakers, Asian women directors, and it's, you know, it's really tricky. Latin women directors. It's so there's a, you know, this discussion somehow with the Oscars turned into black and white, but there are a lot of people at the storytelling table who are phenomenally gifted and skilled and equipped and ready. And, 
there as invisible, you know, so like for me to take a stance, I have to always be aware that I'm not then fighting for some cause that excludes a whole bunch of other people who I really regard and need. And in order for my sense of balance, I need to hear and see their stories is just my story needs to get in, you know. What's the most rewarding thing and the most challenging thing for you as a director? Well, the rewarding, it's, these are both layered in a great way because there's so many stages to the director. So one of the most rewarding things that happens as a director is, for me, when you're isolated and trying to get something moving. And then one day that thing has a life of its own. And then you're... You're sitting with key crew, and then you're sitting with cast, and then you're standing on, you're in pre-production, and then you're in location scouting, tech scouting, and then you're standing on set, and then you're in shots, and then you're in post, and then you're in color correction, and sound design, and, you know, then it's out into the world. And one of the most rewarding things is the collaboration that comes from offering something up that you can't foresee, and I don't know how to explain that in a more cohesive manner and I wish I could but so it has to do with there's something I wish and I do my homework and my prep so I bring something these images let's say so I could bring like you know 40 40 books and 30 films to a DP and say this is it this is that shot this is the light this is the thing I feel this is what chasing here this is it. all right break it all down shot list blah, blah. and we go stand on set and then they're like you know they move a cat they just do something and you just no matter the frame that I set up, even if I took a photo and said, this is the image, this is the frame, this is the feeling, this is the psychology of the human on the other side of that lens, this is what we need. And then they just do something and it's just, I could have never done that. And I'm sitting in the editing room and there's something happening and it's like, I have the whole thing cut in my brain long before I even started the job that, you know, whatever, before we ever like took off, whatever it is, <laughs> before we left the gate. And so then you're sitting in the room in the end and you're going back and forth and back and forth. And it's in my head. Like I would do that. I would do that. Like I'm, I know I'm sitting there watching them and then they do something else. Like I want to try something and they go and it's like, <gasps> I wouldn't have done that. Right. I, I would not. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. I saw all this shit in the macro, but that thing. Oh, it's my favorite. You know, when actors come in and you just think, Oh, you know, and here we are and here's these stories and let's bring them to life. And, and then, you know, they just say, oh, let me try this. And it's just boom. And again, it's my favorite thing is when anyone at any level of production collaborating with other individuals and they do that thing that no matter what, your brain couldn't have done it. But all your preparation allowed them the space. And my job is to make space so that people are safe to feel. Right. So that extends from the crew into the audience when the audience is receiving whatever the story is so you know to not lie and betray and then that's my favorite the most challenging part of directing is probably i mean the normal challenges of like finding locations finding you know when you're worried about a cast member that you really love and they're the perfect person for the story and then there's all this other stuff logistics of their quote and what you can afford <laughs> and their schedule and um being pushed to take some other kind of an actor because it would be better for you for the film the currency of the film and all these other things that happen behind closed doors that are psychotic and freak me out and make me nervous about humanity because they start talking about people like numbers i that all i'm good it's just part of it so i don't that doesn't phase me what i am 
you know, none of the chat, like sleeping, staying up, you know, shooting like 18 hours, going to bed, like going home late, watching dailies, laying back with my boots on to, you know, fall back, just let literally fall back. Alarm goes off in three hours, jump back up with my boots still on, brush my teeth and run out the door and go back to set. That shit is all exciting to me. I love, 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 love it. None of the challenges of production principle pre or post uh, affect me. The one thing that gets me is that we spend a whole hell of an unnecessary amount of time with financiers now that every filmmaker in the game, every director, there's just this chase. There's something, you know, there are a couple of really, really wonderful filmmakers who publicly said, I'm done and, you know, turn, turn their hat, like, you know, walked away from film because you just spend so much time talking to financiers and they're robbing the amount of time you're on set and it's disproportionate and it's vulgar and it's not at all what any of us got into the game for like i did not come to have a hundred meetings with financiers who need someone else's permission by the way to make a decision and they're all risk adverse and they wait for someone else to make a leap and then then they all want to go purchase a similar version of the thing that was right in front of them and i say it all the time it's like you know, that thing now you're chasing that, if that original, that OG person walked through and pitched you this, you, w- you would have said no, because you didn't see it. You can't see it when it's right in front of you. So, you know, that part is challenging. And, you know, my whole shit is I just want equal playing field. So it's like, it's a you simple know. request. It's yeah. really not that hard. I don't, I don't understand how people can't get this concept. Well, and the hard part, too, is when you hear this stuff about like, some people, you'll watch marginalized people are told often this thing about experience. Oh, they're not experienced. That's a line when they don't get high, right? Oh my so gosh. Yeah. they're not experienced, they're not experienced. But so the dude who's now doing The Flash, he came off some show on MTV. He yep. did maybe it was 20 minutes of a show that I think it was 20 minutes of con- like a show he directed. Right. No one who knows the name of it, which is great and cool. And I hope somebody loved it that created it. And I'm not speaking ill about the show. I'm just saying that I think it was 20 minutes versus like, a one-hour drama or a feature, et cetera. So some show he did, maybe directed, it was 20 minutes of content, and he gets that film. But you know that if a woman of color went to that job, that 20-minute show on MTV, they'd tell her she's not experienced. Yep. That woman could have a feature film and have won a bunch of awards around the world and have directed TV for five straight years, multi-camera. And they'll be like, ah, uh, yeah, I don't think Girl. <laughs> it's so, the truth. I hate so- that argument. I feel like it's a cop-out. I think of people like also James Gunn, director of Guardians of the Galaxy. These people didn't have like a plethora of experience prior to getting these mainstream blockbuster films. And yeah. that whole ideal that, oh, we want to pick the best person for the job. Merit, merit, merit. No, diversity <laughs> does not equal mediocrity. Stop it. Stop it. There are talented people of color, people of all different backgrounds, whether you're talking about someone who is, you know, LGBT or people with disabilities. And, and like you mentioned, the whole gamut, there are people that are so talented, but they are not being recognized. And folks need to understand that. Yeah. I mean, and also because it's what's hard is you watch like, you know, there's a there's a story that came out last year and got a bunch of heat. But, you know, if Andrew Dosinamu went and pitched that exact story, no one would have given him $2. And that's heartbreaking. And Andrew's one of the best storytellers we have, you know. And they're just these fascinating, they're just, you know, like these really talented, fascinating people who are for real, like next level. Like they're actually creating, creating, not just like mimicking. Yes. They're the ones who are from their brain, their spirit, their heart, and their soul creating new ways of seeing 
And then everyone's lifting and stealing from them, you know, yep. because they're on the sidelines and without resources and support. But I do think that there is a very, there's a, the, the thing that's special about right now is that a discussion is occurring that has never, ever occurred in this manner with this level of attention in the history of all film and television. So for that, I'm grateful. And like whoever needed to, you know, just come to right now, I was like, all right, like I can't be spiritually arrogant and think that, oh, you know, we've been living this. So I know this circumstance has been real for many years because I've been on the receiving end. But, you know, the truth is this is a brand new discussion for a lot of people and they get to have it and I get not to judge them for having it. And uh, they get to battle it and be confused about it. They also get to stay out of my way. (laughs) (laughs) I know that's a relief. (laughs) Uh, Well, tell us, um, first of all, where can we find more about your work and give us all your social media shout outs. More of my work is really, really fun and coming soon and uh, in a few different levels. There are a number of things I'm not allowed to talk about, and um, and I wish I could, but I will definitely send you info as they go public. And then, you know, there's just fun stuff. You know, I'm doing a sci-fi trilogy with a little girl of color as the lead, and oh, it's one wow. of my favorite things. You know, it's an uphill battle to help people to see why that's special and viable in the marketplace, but it's a fight worth fighting. And I love everything about the story, and I can't wait for it to be unleashed on you know upon audiences and I you know I have two TV shows that I'm developing and I have a feature that's that is really important to me and sacred and you know I just keep going but and other than that my social on Twitter I'm lucky I got my name I don't know how that happened but it's just my name Victoria Mahoney on on the Twitter and Victoria Mahoney on Instagram Excellent. This was such an insightful discussion. I learned so much. I hope people that are listening to this episode that are interested in getting into the film industry and getting their feet wet that they listen to this one because there's some wealthy bits of gems of information that was dropped in this episode. So thank you so much, Victoria, for coming on. Are you kidding? It's my pleasure. One of the things that I think is so special about social media and why it was important for me to talk to you you know, and to like just reflect back what you and um, Lauren are doing is that the danger back in the day was that isolation and um, lack of reflection, as I spoke earlier. So what's happening in social media is when they say, oh, the, this group of people doesn't exist and they're not valuable. It's like we all are counting each other as valuable. It's like, and so we all hear each other's thoughts when back in the day when you see something on TV, like that shit's crazy. Well, now we can actually say that. And have a community forum about it. Like, I know, you do, me too. So there's something so special about allowing and making space for information that people can access. And one of the biggest things in all of that is young people who are up and coming and trying to find their way in in, in towns and cities and states and countries where, you know, they're in small areas and they don't have a way to just jump into panels and forums with filmmakers. So your podcast is really valuable for the person sitting you know somewhere in some town where people are saying you can't do that because they don't want you and then they get to hear us chat and go i don't know i'm gonna give it a go with or without permission give it a go thank you for having me jamie and thank lauren thank you victoria thank you so so much keep on shining Jerome Wolford is an accomplished illustrator and graphic designer. 
In 2008, he began rewriting an old concept he had for a graphic novel series. The idea found new life in his graphic novel series Nowhere Man, and he launched Forward Comics to be a platform for publishing his creator-owned work. Jerome currently continues his work in advertising while furthering installments of the Nowhere Man series and other projects, including Guan. Thank you for tuning into this segment of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie. I'm your host, along with co-host Joelle Monique. We are here with comic creator and the founder of Forward Comics, Jerome Walford. Very excited. If you're a fan of Nowhere Man, then this is definitely the segment for you. And he's going to talk to us about uh, Forward Comics, about his history in comics, and also a new project that he's working on with independent creatives. So, Jerome, thank you so much for coming on our show tonight. Oh, no problem. Thank you so much to, you know, have this opportunity to talk with you guys. It's really exciting. The year has been off to a really swift start. So, you know, thanks again for having me on on the show with you. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. For for anybody out there that don't know your work and is not familiar, can you give us a little bit of information about your background and also your experience in comics? Sure. I was actually a fine art major in college, and um, I can remember drawing a, a, as far back as I can remember. I, I can always remember drawing a lot when I was a kid and developing these crazy stories, and uh, I think that never really left left me at all. So right up until uh, college, I was uh, studying art, and then soon after college, I decided to take a different path, but sooner than I thought, that love and that passion for for storytelling and particularly for comics came back. And uh, I was thinking to myself, what do I do with this now? <laughs> you know, yeah. what do I do with this this long lost passion? And yeah, by myself over my lunch breaks, working on some ideas that I'd sort of tabled for a long time. And uh, one of those stories was Nora Man. And by myself doing some of the writing and trying to figure out what the characters would look like and, and how it sort of play out on the comic pages and just kind of just dive right into it. And and Nowhere Man, that's been sort of the flagship of, of your history with comics. Tell us about yeah. that comic and, and, and about the series as a whole. Sure. So Nowhere Man is a gritty crime drama slash detective story that turns into a sci-fi action thriller. And it, it follows uh, one character in particular. His name is Jack McGuire, who is at this point in the story a detective with the NYPD. And through a strange series of events, he comes into these series of powers. And the story basically falls him along the journey into becoming potentially the first superhero that ever lived. Mm. Excellent. That sounds really interesting. I can't wait to dive in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited great, after thinking about it. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. How many volumes are out? So right now we have a total of six trades out in the series, and the first two volumes were basically broken out into three different trades. So volume one has three trades, and then volume two also has three trades. Essentially, each trade is about uh, 40 pages, collecting about three to four chapters in the saga. And, and what I've tried to do with the series is to have sort of this almost non-linear collection of stories that kind of run linearly for the sake of the way the books are structured. But you get these great glimpses into the past and into the future as well. 
basically seeing the the implications of the actions that Jack Jack has been taking throughout the series. Oh my goodness, so much fun, so much fun. I wanted to ask you because you're a creator out there making your own, and I've noticed since the call to boycott the Oscars for their yeah. lack of minorities, there's been a lot of debate about whether you know are we making our own, are we making enough, should we make our own award ceremonies? And you've kind of gone out and you've already done that. You have your own publishing company. You're creating Black Heroes. For those looking to create their own, what are some pitfalls you wish someone had warned you about? And what are the unforeseen rewards? And that's a, that's a great question. So the the evolution of um, Forward Comics has really been where, again, I had this idea that I was really passionate about, the story that I really wanted to tell, and then trying to find the best avenue to get that story out into the public. And Forward Comics really evolved all that process. You know, we, I, I shopped it around a little bit and there was some interest because, you know, a couple of folks I had talked to were interested in where the story was going, but, you know, some of the, just some of the details, it didn't, just didn't work for them in terms of, you know, the, the reality is I was sort of this newbie, right? You know, <laughs> coming mm-hmm. into comics. Although I had this great career in advertising and was making a good living doing that, I didn't really have a track record in comics. And so, you know, they, they kind of balked at the opportunity. And so I decided, you know, if I really care about the story and I really care about the way I want to see characters, and particularly African-American characters depicted in comics, I, I had to do the best I could to see that happen. And so Forum Comics really developed as a vehicle to, to do that, you know, to have the, the a level of autonomy that we needed to get this project out there. Now, you know, this whole idea of the, the boycott, I've been thinking about it quite a bit. And, uh, you know, I can sort of certainly see the validity on, on this side of the issue, right? I think mm-hmm. there is something, you know, really important in just seeing what's out there and seeing the dynamics that are out there, you know, through an event like the Oscars and sort of developing a response to that. And I think whether or not we decide to do some sort of boycott or something like that, is really just a competition starter, right? It's not mm-hmm. sort of the be-all and end-all of how we should respond to something like that. I think the mm-hmm. reality is if you really want to make a significant impact, you have to think about, fine, now that we have this competition going, now that we've sort of brought it to the floor, what's the next step? What's like an action step we can take, you know, to to kind of, you know, kind of move the issue forward? You know, and, and that's really kind of how Forward Comics started, Right. You know, when I when I thought about going into comics and I was really gung ho about it, I was really kind of almost naive, <laughs> hopefully in a good way um, <laughs> at this point. But I was very naive. I thought, you know, boy, you know, I don't see a lot of African American characters out there. You know, I don't see a lot of this particular dynamic in comics. So I'm just going to go out in there and I'm just going to make it happen. I'm just going to do it. So you kind of need that passion, you know, yeah. because you know it's 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 worth it to kind of discuss what issues may be at play in terms of not seeing enough diversity or representation. But if you're not actually physically doing something about it, whether it is creating new content or supporting content that's already out there, then, you know, it's all from you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you've kind of also taken a step in that direction with your collection, Guan, which I love yeah. the name. It's super amazing. <laughs> um, it's a collection of stories from a bunch of diverse artists centered around themes of foreign lands and the immigrant experience and cultural fusion. So everything I love. Um, And the work you've collected so far is diverse and beautiful. What does this project mean to you personally? And who are you encouraging to submit to Guan? I think it kind of goes back to 
my inspiration to get into comics in the first place. You know, there's a certain story that I wanted to tell and it felt like there was no right avenue for that. And so I kind of found myself needing to kind of create a platform from which I could tell that story. Unfortunately, I think not a lot of folks have that opportunity to kind of create their own platform to tell their stories. And I want to kind of do something that I wish was available for me when I was getting my start. And I think one of the things that I learned rather quickly, you know, after starting getting into comics and and working on Nowhere Man, working on a couple of the stories that I wanted to do was that it wasn't for lack of effort. You know, <laughs> we're not seeing diversity out there. It wasn't because it was a lack of effort. It was because there are certain challenges or pitfalls that creators were falling into that kind of gets you stuck, you know, and not able to finish a project or get something out there that's that's uh, worthy for consumption. Pitfalls and I think like the, what? The, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. What, what sure, no, of- no problem. Yeah. I think one of the things is that not really understanding the market. You know, mm-hmm. um, not really understanding some of the challenges that you may have logistically and also creatively in terms of being able to tell a story. So I think one of the things that I really encourage our young creators to do is to, you know, to really do their homework because the comic market is, you know, it's pretty broad. You know, there's a lot of different things you could do. There are certain avenues that are much more narrow. You know, if you're thinking about more sort of more mainstream stuff, it's kind of mm-hmm. narrow. But in the indie market, and that's one reason why I decided to go indie. It's so much more creative and and open to seeing lots of different kinds of things that it gave us the flexibility to do the kind of stories we wanted to tell. And so one of the challenges is, you know, it's kind of just understanding the market. I think the other challenge, too, is it's kind of biting off more than you can chew. You know, <laughs> so, so and I'm guilty of this, too. But I think one of the things I would encourage young creators to think about is, you know, if you have this really great story that you think you want to tell, Find a way to take a little snippet of that and turn it into something that's a finished product and that you can show people. And, and so one of the reasons what I, that I wanted to do, Guan, was to basically create that opportunity for young comic creators to find a way to, they may have an, an idea that may be really specific or they may be working on something that is uh, really epic. If it ties into this theme in some way, please just, just do like an eight-pager. That's all we're asking for. And get it done. <laughs> you know, you, you got to finish. <laughs> so I see a lot of folks kind of falling into the trap of starting out something and, and not completing it. So, you know, Guan gives them this great opportunity. And I think we've been doing an open call now for at least six months. So it gave folks a lot of time. And, and yeah, when, when, when we get that submission, it, it needs to be, you know, the best you can do. And I think, too, you know, one of the things that I actually saw somebody put this meme on Twitter, which was really profound, that... We need to start supporting what we love and stop yeah. ranting and complaining about what we hate. Because I, I think we That's always good. fuel our passion into what is missing, what is wrong, mm. rather than focusing on the fact that there are independent creators out there that are making comics, that are publishing their own comics, like yourself, and so many mm-hmm. other creatives that I've been able to meet along the way since creating this platform, Black Girl Nerds. And yet we erase them somehow and dismiss them because we're so focused on the big two. Like, what right. is Marvel not doing? And why is there so many, uh, you know, white guys in, in Marvel comics? Well, you know, Marvel's been around for a long time. And, uh, long time. you know, they, they, they have, they're very set in their ways. But we have the opportunity to look to other creatives that are able to diversify their content. They have more creative control over their 
content, more autonomy. And yeah. why don't we look to those folks and support them? I mean, do you feel like there's something that we need to shift in terms of our perception and our thinking when it comes to supporting independent comics? Oh, absolutely. And I think it also ties back into this thing that we were touching on earlier with the Oscars. You know, you can yeah. sort of, you can yell and scream all day long, but if you're not supporting the folks that are already out there producing quality work, then, you know, it's really all for naught. I think a lot of what we see now as sort of being sort of the, the apex of achievement, whether it be the Oscars or doing work for Marvel or whatever the case may be, really comes from, you know, decades of hard work and experimentation and, and honing the craft and learning the business, you know. So there's a lot of history there with the big two that if you don't give smaller creators that same opportunity, that same love over time, you know, they're not going to have the resources or the sales to be able to survive long enough to get to that that perfection that someone may be looking for. So that's something to think about, too. You know, if you see an independent creator out there that's doing quality work, but it may not be as polished around the edges as, as Marvel and DC, that may not necessarily be a reason not to support them. I mean, again, having that support, just practically like having... <laughs> you know, earned money from their creation gives them the and gives myself the incentive to keep going, to keep producing work because it is generating some income. It is getting some positive feedback that you can build on and get better and better with over time. Can you speak to a little bit about your start in art? How did you kind of define and refine your style? Yeah, I, I think I, I kind of feel myself still evolving in, in my art. I was a fine art major, and I, I'm really grateful for that uh, opportunity that I had. But when I found myself going back into art, in particular doing comics, you know, I had to relearn a lot of things and learn lots of new things. So, you know, it's, it's one of those crafts where when you're starting out, you're definitely not where you want to be in terms of the quality of work you want to see. And as an artist, I'm always, I'm really always pushing myself to see, you know, this is, this is good, but, you know, I really want to be, you know, at that next level. So one of the things that is really important is to continue to just look at, you know, folks that really inspire me and just kind of see what they're doing and kind of breaking down how they do it and then learning how to then apply those disciplines and those techniques to my own work. And, you know, I'm, I'm really glad to see that over the series of Norway Man, I've been able to develop a little bit more of my own style, a little more polish, a little bit more finesse to my line work and, and to my color that you know I hope that, that folks can really appreciate. Where can we find more about your work and Guan and, and any future projects that you're currently working on? So the the main place to find out what we're doing at Forward Comics is forwardcomics.com and that's spelled with a C O M I X. And and we also use the regular spelling as well too, so you can find us that way as well. But on that website, you'll see all the work that we have published, which includes all six trades in the No Romance series. We've got a couple other smaller comics that we've done. There's also a novel called Daniel's Pride, which has been getting some really good feedback. And of course, Guan, which is our biggest project of this calendar year. There are links to seeing the submission page for, for Guan and learning more about, you know, this really big international effort that we're doing with, with Guan to kind of use it as a platform to, again, bring together people from all different walks of life and different cultures and different experiences around this common theme into this one collection that I'm really, really excited about. So yeah, our website is forwardcomics.com. We're also on social media at Facebook slash forwardcomics and also our Twitter handle is also at forwardcomics. 
Any last words for someone that is interested in getting into comics? They really don't know where to start and they just want to get their work put out there. Just some solid advice for the budding comic creator that's listening to this episode right now. I think the the most solid advice that I can give to someone who's just getting their start in, in comics is to come up with almost like a like a, a short term plan. You know, something that it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen overnight. But you know, where do you envision yourself as a comic creator six months from now or a year from now? And then begin to work your way backwards from that. You know, come up with a plan saying six months from now I'm going to have eight pages in this short story done, or you know, or even a little bit more than that. And then figuring out the way to get from where you are to that finished product, you know, getting started in comics, the most important thing that you can do for yourself personally, uh, professionally, and also for a potential publishers looking at your work, they want to be able to see that you can finish, you know, that's the most important thing. Certainly quality is, is of importance, but, you know, if your work is amazing, but, you know, you, you, Again, if you think about telling sequential stories with, you know, with sequential art, they want to see that you have from page one all the way through to the end of your story and that it's, that it's finished and it has a level of consistency to it. So I would say the first thing to work on is coming with a plan. Second thing is working on consistency of your work. And third thing is finish, <laughs> finish, finish, finish that project that you're working on. So yeah, those, those would be my recommendations. Thank you, Jerome. Thank you for talking to us tonight. Yeah, no problem. It's been, you know, a, a great time to be on with you and explain what we're doing at Forward Comics. You know, we're we're still a young publisher, but, you know, I'm certainly doing my best to make sure that we are just really producing quality work. It's not for us about producing tons of material. It's all about just creating really select projects of high quality. And, you know, I, I really put a lot of my heart into Nowhere Man, and I hope that comes through. And uh, with Juan, it's going to be the same way. I'm certainly giving a lot of my my own experiences, you know, being born in Jamaica and being here in the States now for a long time. But a lot of that is sort of my motivation behind the theme of Guan, you know, this whole idea of the immigrant experience and, you know, being able to share my cultural background and my experiences with others and, and, and be able to come together around those common experiences. So I'm really excited about uh, this year and seeing what we can do with this project. Support what you love. Stop complaining about what you hate. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much. It's it's been good. Thank you so much. In the following segment, Jacqueline Coley interviews Bob Holden. Jacqueline most days is a mild-mannered healthcare consultant and part-time journalist. However, she's a full-time gamer, comic book fan, internet addict, and lover of all things geek. Bob Holden is the VP of Category Management over at Loot Crate. Bob travels all across the country to various conventions to interact with consumers who are Loot Crate buyers or also potential buyers to be able to engage in a way that's more face-to-face as well as having an online presence. Bob Holden. Uh I'm Vice President of Category Management at Loot Crate. You just recently came over to Loot Crate, so how did you get involved with them? Yeah, so I've, I've spent a good number of years working at other e-commerce businesses. I uh, worked, e- worked at eBay, eHarmony, did some startups, and a person that I knew had just joined Loot Crate about six months ago. And he was 
calling me. He's like, Bob, you got to check this company out. I had I had never heard of the company, despite the fact that I'm a gamer. And I looked online, and I went and did a search on YouTube, and I saw that there were a million videos for a Loot Crate, and I was blown away. And I started watching some of these videos, and, you know, just individuals doing unboxing, and, you know, looking at all the comments, and I was absolutely amazed at the community that they built. Um, so decided to actually call them back. So I joined Loot Crate to basically head up all of the subscription product lines that we have. So, And so for those of you that don't know, Loot Crate is a monthly subscription um, service where you basically, it's all things geek. You guys do comic books and apparel and everything else. And it really partners well with a lot of the gamers, streamers, YouTube influencers. Um, tell a little bit about why you guys have that business model. Most of your advertising goes with that as opposed to mainstream media. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Yeah, we work with a ton of influencers, you know, primarily on YouTube. We also work with some Twitch influencers. And that that advertising medium works well for us because first of all, we're we're a company composed of geeks, gamers, and lovers of pop culture. And you know, when we work with people who kind of share those same values and interests, it's not really advertising. It's it really is, you know, kind of authentic endorsements of the products that we sell. You know, I mean, when you when you open up a Loot Crate, it's a mystery box. You don't know what you're going to get. Um, we, you know, we tell our community, who we call looters, um, we tell them ahead of time what the theme of the box is going to be, and we also tell them what the, you know, the IPs that we're working with are, you know, that are going to be represented in that box. Like, this month for the, uh, for our core crate, you know, which is our our normal loot crate that sells for 20 bucks a month, including shipping and handling. Um, the theme is dead. You know, when you go on the page, you'll see awesome artwork that we create in-house. You'll see that, um, you know, the the franchises that will be in the box are going to be from The Walking Dead, Deadpool, and also Harry Potter <laughs> is, in, is in the box as well. People love seeing that, but all they know is they're going to get at least a T-shirt in that box. And, you know, there will be some collectibles or figurines. You know, what we're really trying to do is bring comic that Comic-Con experience and put it in a box and surprise um, our audience with it. And so when we work with the influencers, you know, they we send them the boxes. And, you know, they basically just record themselves opening up the box and talking about the products and which products they find cool and resonate with them. So... It, it, it's an effective advertising medium for us. And I will say, as a, as a gamer and somebody that follows a lot of that stuff, I've known about Loot Crate way before I would have if it would have been a mainstream advertisement, and I guess that's the whole point. Black Girl Nerds, you know, we're a website mostly for all things black culture, but also a lot of nerdy stuff. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, you as a POC gamer? There's been a lot of, like, ebb and flow with um, diversity in gaming, what you've seen and, and how you brought that to Loot Crate. Yeah, yeah. So as an African-American... You know, I think I, I definitely bring a unique perspective to Loot Crate, especially, you know, as a member of our, you know, senior executive team. You know, one of the things that, you know, we talk about a lot is, you know, diversity of, you know, how, how, we, how we represent diversity within our products, how we, rep you know, how we make sure that, you know, we're thinking about all of our audiences when it comes to, 
the product assortment. Mm-hmm. You know, a specific example, we just announced yesterday um, that we're launching a new subscription box, which is Loot Gaming. Um, you know, we have Loot Anime, Loot Pets, we have Level Up, which is an apparel um, mystery subscription, and our core crate. But gaming is an area we've been wanting to go into for a long time. Um, and I led up the, the whole strategy behind this business line and you know we were really excited to get it launched yesterday but I can tell you we had a lot of discussions as we were developing this product when we were thinking about okay how do we want to properly represent the gaming this gaming box to all audiences you know because when you see you know when you see a lot of you know gaming artwork and a lot of gaming marketing um, you know some of it you know I think you know really sexualizes women you know, you don't necessarily see a lot of diverse character there, um, but the gaming space in particular, you know, I think has really, it's grown to be far more encompassing. So when we came up with our theme art for our inaugural box, which is with under the theme Legacy, um, you know, we purposefully did not put, um, you know, race on, on any of the characters. Uh, and we actually have a mix of genders. So we have, uh, you know, two warrior characters, you know, basically characters that are supposed to represent or remind you of three three of the key franchises that are going to be represented in the first box, Halo, Skyrim, and Street Fighter. Um, but we purposely chose, you know, a female character from Street Fighter. And, and so, you know, some of the, I think there's a lot that you can, that you can do from a nuance perspective to develop products that you know don't make people feel excluded um, and that's and that's important to us and I think also too we talk a lot about it on the website and online so it's great to hear a big company like Loot Crate is even considering things like that in the in the rooms because you say a lot it's like the people that are making the decision in the rooms are they really even thinking about this kind of stuff I know you guys are also doing a big partnership you guys just announced you're doing a Firefly bi-monthly box and you know again that's another great show where you have a great um, African-American female protagonist so can you tell us a little bit about boxing and how you guys are doing that yeah yeah so we just announced um, the the Firefly bi-monthly crate um, about two weeks ago and the response has actually been overwhelming you know we we haven't the box hasn't even gone, gone on sale yet you know it will will go on sale soon so I believe I believe the URL is lootcrate.com backslash Firefly. Um, so you can go there and enter your email address so you can get notified when the box goes on sale. We've actually gotten over 50,000 email signups already for this box. The brown coats are incredibly excited. And what's actually very cool is we're working with one of the um, actresses from Firefly. She she is going to be um, basically doing some filming with us to help promote the launch of this box, and so we're the brown coats are have turned out in force. In fact, probably one of the most one of the most popular comments that I've seen about the box is, "Oh, I just hope the box lasts longer than the show. (laughs) Please make sure the box lasts longer than the show." And our you know, and we're telling everybody, look, as long as there's demand for the product. You know, we will continue producing it, and that box, just like all the rest of our boxes, will feature all licensed exclusive product. So, if you buy the box, you'll get it, but if you don't, 
by the box, you will not be able to find that product anywhere else. Box is going to sell out. And, you know, and every month we, you know, we're going to strive to have, you know, a really fun and different assortment of products. That's, that's really important to us, you know, as, as fans of these, of these shows and games. You know, we always want to bring new and fresh, you know, products and material um, to the looter community. That's great. As a looter, I love the subscription services you guys have. The, the primary Loot Crate, you have Loot Crate MA. You guys just um, also did Loot Crate Pets. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I also love is that you guys pair so well with the community. Um, you guys are at every single con. I mean, you guys are here now at PAX South, which is one of the smaller cons, but you'll also be at PAX East and that. And, and, and talk about you guys' presence at all these events and how you guys look to that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, um, it's interesting because we... I think we're doing, I think, 10 or 15 different different cons this year. You know, we're doing Comic-Con, you know, we're doing Anime Expo, PAX East, PAX West, which used to be PAX Prime. You know, we're, you know, we go to, we go to a lot of these, of these shows. And the, and the main reason that we go is to interact with our looter community. Yes, we do sell, you know, crates at the, at the at the at the cons, and usually what we do is actually um, curate con-specific crates, so con-exclusive crates. But we do, and we do that not because they're huge sellers. We do that because our community of looters loves it, and they have fun, and they enjoy it. And if you come to one of the cons where we're at, and you show your looter card, or you know, kind of identify yourself as a loot crate, you know, community member, then we give away a special gift to you for free as well so it's really we do it honestly as a way just to say thank you for being part of the community um not because it's some enormous money maker or something like that i mean when you're selling crates one by one from behind a table you obviously you can't you know you can't sell nearly the number of crates that you can sell online i mean we've got over half a million monthly subscribers so you know the cons we don't do it because it's some enormous business driver we do it because it's a great way for us to engage our mm-hmm. community and a great way to say thank you and, again, kind of put a human face to what we do for the people who, you know, who really have built, helped us build this business. You can definitely tell that it's a company um, built by fans. I, I definitely love the fact that, you know, when that box comes, it is. It's like a little Comic-Con that you get in your mailbox, and, you know, I'll get a little irritated if I don't get it that day and I gotta wait the next day for the for the <laughs> for the delivery to come back. But um yeah I really appreciate you sitting down and chatting with us. I will say this since you're in Texas, this is obviously probably not your first time here, but any cool thing that you've seen so far in San Antonio? Uh yeah. Um it's my first time in San Antonio. I've been to Texas numerous times. I went to the Alamo last night. <laughs> it's tiny, isn't it? Yeah it is. Yeah it is. And what was really funny was they were it was around midnight actually and they were changing the flag, um, you know, because it was a new day, and the flag got stuck, you know, halfway up the flagpole. So they were sitting there shaking the flagpole, trying to get the flag, you know, unstuck. Uh, so that was pretty funny, but, you know, at least I can say I've seen the Alamo, though. And I have to say, I mean, the city itself is beautiful. The Riverwalk, I mean, it was amazing. I was like, this is a really, really nice place. So I'm enjoying it. And, and thank you yeah. to, you know for taking the time to hear about us and thank you to your you know to your community again as a as an african-american i completely understand the need to 
and the desire to just be included in the conversation. That's yeah. as important to me as anything else. Wow. Well, thank you so much for uh, spending the time and uh, have a great con. Thank you. You too. Hey, X-Files fans. This next segment is for you. So I sat with four women, Ashley from Graveyard Shift Sisters. Ashley is the founder and creator of Graveyard Shift Sisters, a website that focuses on black women and horror. She's also the co-host of Girls Will Be Ghouls that you can find on iTunes. Mel Perez is a lover of 1980s fantasy movies, comic books, and creepy deep sea creatures. Recently moved from the land beyond to upstate New York, you can hit her up on Twitter to talk about Star Wars feelings or costume design. Karan Jay is a writer, artist, activist, and ruler of all she surveys. She's the founder and executive director of Rebuild Her, and Karan is media. Talia is a passionpreneur in the making. In the meantime, she enjoys Netflix and being a warrior with her spare time. These four women chat with me about all things related to X-Files, including the old series and the new. Take a listen. Welcome to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. X-Files recently premiered on Fox, and all of us X-Files are super excited about the 2016 version that recently has come out. So I have a panel of women that are huge fans, and we're going to talk about everything from what we thought about the pilot to maybe some conspiracy theories what we think about the character development that's happening, the story arc that it's in now. So I am pleased to have Mel Perez, Ashley from Graveyard Shift Sisters, and we have some new guests, Karan and Talia, joining us on this discussion. Thank you, ladies, so much for coming on the show. Hey, love to be Thanks here. So. Thank you. Thank you. Great. So X-Files, when it premiered, I noticed on social media, I had live tweeted and it was Great. It was so much fun. We used the hashtag DatX on Twitter. A lot of people were excited. But then when I started reading a lot of the recaps and reviews from other online sites, I noticed it had some mixed reviews. So I wanted to know what was your takeaway from the pilot of the new X-Files? And anyone can feel free to jump in. Can we talk about the soliloquy, though? I mean, at the beginning, can we just go there with the soliloquy. Let's start the beginning at the beginning. Moda's soliloquy was a bit much. It was very long, but it kind of, it was nostalgic too. So it kind of, mm-hmm. it was like reconnecting with an old friends. Like, you remember when? And then, you know, the spaceships coming in and the whole nine. So I, I, I really dug, I thought it was a little bit long, but the, it really kind of set the tone and the mood for reconnecting with those old friends. Hmm. Yeah. What do you guys think about that? Well, um, I saw the pilot at New York Comic Con back in August. Oh. And they had like Mulder and Skinner and Chris Carter on the stage. Jillian was not there, unfortunately. 
So then they showed the pilot, and as soon as like that opening credits came on, I started crying. So I'm like, I am not in the right place. <laughs> I, did too. I, I really to, appreciated to that they did that episode mm-hmm. because like watching it with a whole bunch of you know X Files fanatics in that room, like. No, I'm like, I love this thing. I don't care. I can't criticize. I'm pretty sure there's something there might be something wrong with it, but I can't see it because I have fangirl goggles and they are thick. So <laughs> I need somebody else to come in and tell me if there's a problem. And be a bit more objective. You know, I really appreciated the fact that they had the original opening titles for the show. I mean, mm-hmm. it, because this is essentially a continuation. This isn't a reboot. This isn't a remake. They're continuing with the story that ended in 2002. So I, I really appreciated the fact that they, they kept that continuity there. That's what I was going to say. I liked where it picked up where it left off more or less to me. I watched the series when I was, when it was originally on the air and I got geeked a few months ago when I saw that they put the entire series on Netflix. And so. I've been, you know, re-paneling back through it and then leading up to uh, finding out that they were rebooting the actual series on Fox. So I thought that the first episode kind of, obviously, if you didn't watch the series before, you didn't, you're, you're not, you don't know the whole background, but it right. kind of was picking up where it left off. And I like that. Ashley, what, what were your thoughts about that? Because you are a huge X-Files fan and I know that you had done a rewatch with who was it? Was it Horror Honeys or was it another group that you guys did like a live tweet rewatch? We didn't do a rewatch. I don't know if there was any official Twitter live tweet of it. The issue for me was there's nine seasons and that's 202 episodes, I believe. So it's it was too much. And so like there needed to be some kind of sophisticated <laughs> system to kind of narrow down <laughs> what episodes are crowd pleasers to watch with a bunch of people to kind of get us going for this season. So I think a lot of the uh, live tweets, if there were any, were kind of in isolation, kind of just like, you know, mm-hmm. jump in when you can. Right. So I know one team of podcasters, they did like a, a very, uh, like a three, four week run of a couple of episodes that they kind of picked to lead up to the series coming. But yeah, I mean, that was my point. I think even with the opening of the of the series, I mean, it, it's it's nine seasons. They do what a lot of things do when they reboot it. They want to bring in new a new audience. They want to right. they want the new audience to feel comfortable right. as well as give the older fans what they want. So kind of doing that recap again, like I'm kind of in the camp of unless is unless is really you know overt, you can't really do anything wrong from in my eyes because I think I think Chris Carter is is bringing he's bringing all the right touches to it to keep you know both or both audiences entertained. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I respect the fact that he, he's got the same crew with him. Mark Snow is still the composer and it's like they never left. You know, my daughter called me the night that it aired because I wasn't able to watch till the next day I was on the road. And she said, oh, my gosh, this was our thing. We used to watch this together. And then she started telling me about what was going on. I was like, no, no, you're going to tell me. You can't watch it yet. When I started watching it, it was nice to see that that they did keep a lot of the same elements and it was still new. It right. wasn't mm-hmm. it, it mm-hmm. didn't go so far back in time that that someone knew watching it would be lost because it gave enough of the backstory. And I thought, you know, part one was a little bit slow, but part two. Oh, my goodness. Heavens to Murgatroyd. I was sitting there with my mouth hanging open. I mean, I felt those same kind of feels that I felt in the original series when we were had the monster of the week kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. it was I felt 
those same feelings came back. It was like mm-hmm. reconnecting with an old boyfriend and you know, he's got an old cologne and you're like, Oh, I remember that night. It was good. <laughs> yeah. The second, the second episode was much better. And it felt, it felt good because then you could be on Twitter with people. Whereas before when the series was airing, it was just, I would do like aim chat. And then that wasn't as, that wasn't the same. It wasn't the same. Or message boards. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Yes. Before Fox, you know, would try to shut everything down. Those were the good old days. <laughs> and, and, and can I just say, Jillian, either she has had some really good work or girlfriend has been working out because she looks good. I was going to ask, that was going to yes. be my next question about the actors, because I'm amazed at how well everybody has aged. Especially Skinner. He looks mm, better. Skinner. Skinner, like, what has he been doing? I, I really want to know. What have you been doing, know. dude? <laughs> Right. Waiting for him to go shirtless. But yeah, I it was pretty phenomenal to see how the actors really have not aged a day since the original series started, which 1993 was when yep. the show premiered. So that's a really long time. Um, but yeah, I can't believe how long it's been. I mean, when I saw the old idea of Mulder, I was like, Dude looks exactly the same with a little bit of scruffy hair. He looks the same. <laughs> some people didn't like the scruffy hair. I didn't have a problem with it. But some people were like, really, dude? You're not going to be like all cleaned up or. No. No, he really not. From the last I, I movie. I mean, he's much better than he was in the last movie. I mean, he had a beard. He looked like he had been living in the streets. <laughs> it was so bad. Some people want to forget about the last movie, though. That's yeah, the thing. They still, um, they still incorporated <laughs> it. So it's still part of, you know, it's part of it. Yeah, the movie, the movie was like the bad dream part of it. Mm. Yeah. It was, yeah. That it I happened. was wondering if they were going to incorporate uh, the last movie into this, and it seems like they are. I didn't like the scruffy look either, but when I saw that, I was like, oh, maybe it's because of that. Right. I was wondering whether thought- they were giving us the California... The California- I, was about to say, the- I, thought, I thought that he was doing <laughs> So, so what do you guys have any, I know it's really super early on in the series. We've only knocked out two episodes, but do you have any theories yet as to what to expect? Because it, it seems to me the story arc is going to be surrounding both Scully and Mulder's son, William. And mm-hmm. it, it seems like that's the theme that they're going with, with this story arc. So any conspiracy theories as of yet that you have been flirting with? Well, they kind of started on the whole vein about the whole thing being a lie. And I think the great thing about good sci-fi is that it's not probable, but it's plausible. It could happen. It probably wouldn't, but it could. So in that whole vein, I just really, I have a lot of speculations. I think there's going to be something that's important that's going to happen with William that's going to change everything. Like I loved during the series how the transition of of Scully being so, you know, hardcore science, everything could be explained and into her own. And they connected it to the young girl who, you know, had alien DNA. And then she discovered that she did too. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, seriously, she's beginning to believe. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was really a great transition to who she was, who she developed into, who she, that skepticism coupled with the science is what made her character so powerful she's always going to be the smartest one in the room always but right. now she's questioning what she believes too mm. you know what having done the rewatch recently 
Like when I was younger watching it for the first time, you know, Mulder was my favorite character. And I'm like, okay, everything he says is so true. Mulder has like the biggest balls because he'll walk into a room of people. I'm like, yeah, I think it was alien abduction. Everybody will look at him like he's an idiot, but he'll still keep doing it. And I thought, okay, everything makes sense. Mm-hmm. And Scully's just not picking up on this. Scully, don't you see? But rewatching it now, I look at Scully and I see someone who always cares about the people in the situation. Yeah. Whereas Mulder is always going to care about the truth, no matter what he has to do to get that truth. Whereas Scully is like, okay, this person is going to die. So I'm going to focus on this dying person while you go running after this, you know, this guy who may tell you this thing that may confirm some theory you may have. So it's not so much that she would refuse to believe what was going on. She was just always focused on the moment of saving people. Mm-hmm. That that was her biggest concern, not what happened or why it happened, just saving the people that were there. You know, and Scully, Scully was desexualized for the majority of the series. So I'm kind of liking hot Scully that's accepting the date and holding a champagne glass in a limo. Mm, I really yeah. <laughs> I like Scully and, and it's like it's a part of her development into a full woman, her full womanhood. She's always had science. She's always had medicine. But now she has herself. Now she has Dana. And Dana is now part of this entire storyline. I think her humanity, her womanity, for lack of a, no, that's a good term for her womanity. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I'm going to start using that womanity. Nice. Yeah, it, it's being realized. I really saw her come through at the end when she was saying that the girl was not alone. I was like, oh, I just can't take it. I can't take it. Oh, poor Scully. She gave up so much for this. Yeah. Ugh. What are your thoughts, Ashley, on, you know, Scully being a fully actualized woman? in this series as opposed to the earlier seasons where she was a little bit more detached and kind of the arc was focused more on Mulder and his sort of MOs rather than than Scully's. What what are your thoughts about that? I think it's been kind of a push and pull since day one personally. I I don't know, maybe it's because I spent way too much time on message boards and doing (laughs) a lot of it. It was like my first foray into like this deep madness of fandom. So I was I was around in the early, early days. So I think for me, I can kind of see the canon of her kind of stoic uh, stasis and her characterization. But at the same time, I always saw more. I don't know if it was the fan fiction. I don't know if it was like, you know, <laughs> the conversations I had with other fans. But it was I always saw her as a person who was constantly evolving. I mean, it you know, you can go back to when she was first abducted in season two. So. There's all there's always been a there's always been this this wave that she's been on with her you know her character and it's like I don't know if anything I'm saying is making any sense but um it's always been really focused on Mulder's story but at the same time I never really it never really felt that way to me it was just this weird yeah. balance not balance of we got some real insight into both of these characters especially especially with Scully in the later seasons so starting really in season seven I would say. Yeah, I would yeah. agree because in the beginning it was more focused on Mulder, but right. like season four was a really strong season for Scully. And it's like one of the episodes, I think it was Never Again, where mm-hmm. Scully mm-hmm. went and got drunk with that guy and started talking about how she has problems with authority figures, but she kind of likes it a little bit and then had a tattoo and then slept with that guy. I think she slept with that guy. I was like, look at Scully That's getting debatable. it on. <laughs> <laughs> That's debatable. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then Mulder's like, all of this because I didn't get you a desk? And she looked at him. She's like, you know what, Mulder? Not everything is about you. Right. I was like, you tell you tell him, Scully. What do you guys think about the cigarette smoking man? <laughs> oh. I, I wasn't oh. expecting that at all. But Not through his neck? No. <laughs> if we can suspend disbelief that he did actually die in the finale, but let's leave that alone since they clearly have. But I right. I still feel like he is, I still, it, he has been dangling that carrot in front of Mulder and Scully for like nine seasons. I think it's yeah. interesting that he's back because something tells me he, we know he knows secrets. I mean, he pretty much knows everything. And I'm just trying to like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how does he still play into this? Because is he going to really reveal what exactly they need to know about, about what they've been through with the X-Files about William? He, He's got to be attached to William in some way or shape or form. It, yeah. it just doesn't make sense to bring him back just like that without some sort of really good motive. And I feel like he's attached to William. Yeah, I hope he doesn't have William. Ew. It was confirmed in the finale that he is Mulder's father. So right. I, I believe right. that. So, yeah, who knows? Okay, but who's holding the cigarette to his neck? That's what I need to know. He's like, he's like, right. you know, the the blizzard roaches, the, the roaches that will survive anything. But how do you survive getting burned to death? I don't right. understand that. I think, I think that ties into <laughs> the, yeah, I think it ties into the conspiracy and everything. Oh, if, okay. If, if, if there's Hence some the cigarettes. And... It feels super implausible. I feel like I'm rationalizing something that just cannot be rationalized, but it has to, has to be the, something. it has to be it. I mean, yeah. I mean, you come back as the Phantom of the Opera. Did you see that thing on the side of his face? Yeah. Yeah. That's how he he's came. all toasty. I mean, there's probably something that they can bring bring people back to life with. I mean, they have everything else in the X Files, so probably just drink something or they put him in a bath and then he just came back. But we saw his face get melted off to the point where he was a skeleton. <laughs> we saw his skeletal remains. Yeah, like I'm just like, how that. does that happen? Well, how do we know that he's human? That's what I'm thinking too. That he's got to be, yeah. Because maybe, maybe part of the period, syndicate, you know, they say you you study what you want to know about yourself. So mm-hmm. maybe Mulder's, you know, hyper real interest in, in gung ho was about more than his sister being abducted. Maybe his sister was abducted because of something his daddy did. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's a good it's, one. It's a thought. If they wait, if they go back and change again, what happened to Samantha? I'll be pissed. I'll accept everything else. But, like, we had some closure on that, and I want to stick with that closure. I don't want them to change it again. The episode was literally called Closure, so, yeah, they, they yeah. need to keep that. <laughs> they need to close that door and leave it shut because it's been too long and too many times. Uh-uh. Samantha needs to stay out of this one. Hmm. That's what I feel like this whole, this new version is going to reveal. There's going to be some sort of family tree connection between Mulder and Samantha and Cancer Man and it's all just going to come together and hopefully it'll tie up really well to what we saw from you know seasons one through nine and not just like be like oh really guys this is what we were waiting for this is the ending that you're going to give us (laughs) this Samantha's been alive all this time all this time right or it was all a dream please don't do that Please, Please don't do the dream sequence. Please don't I, make it be all a dream. 
You know, I, I would really like to see American television kind of take a cue from British television and have shorter, more fully developed series in a smaller period of time. I really like the idea of having these shorter seasons with mm-hmm. fuller stories. Yeah. So it's like I watch a lot of British television because I love how they tell stories on television, even though it's not diverse at all. But it's you right. ha- like Luther. Luther gets four episodes, but those four to six episodes are like mind blowing. The story is so cohesive. Right. So I would, I would really like to see the X-Files leave us wanting more. And then next year, maybe have the surprise of another, you know, four or six episode arc that continues the story, because this is something that is such a huge part of people's lives. I mean, my daughter is now 26 years old. This is something we used to watch together every night. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it, that's a that's a very interesting connection space for me and my family. It's like, I would like to see that story continue. We've all grown and developed, and I'd like to see mm-hmm. who these characters be- continue to become because they're obviously still becoming. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I also uh, remember seeing on Twitter with respect to the storytelling and the format of the storytelling is, Someone was criticizing that a lot is being revealed very quickly. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense because this is a mini series. It's not going to be 19, 20 episodes long like the other seasons were. So, yeah, there, you're going to get a lot unpacked in a very short period of time. But I think they're doing so far, from what I can see, a pretty good job of mm-hmm. revealing bits and pieces of information without being too overwhelming. But I guess for some people that have been used to seeing the old series and sort of the the pattern and, and the, the pacing of how each arc is slowly unfolding, that it's a little bit jarring compared to what they're seeing with the new 2016 version. Mm-hmm. I didn't mind so much because then I figured this could all be a lie anyway. So I'm just going to sit here <laughs> and wait <laughs> because they turn things over so often that you, you can't believe something the first time somebody tells you. Right. On the X-Files, you got to wait a little while to see if this is going to come back up as true. Do you get a sense, too, that it's feeling a little bit more diverse and intersectional, the X-Files? Like the second episode with Sanjay's storyline, you know, he's gay, a man of Indian descent. And I, I think that that was pretty cool to see that that's not something that I've seen before in early television. So. Yeah. Do you feel like that they're doing a pretty good job with respect to diversity or do you think we need to see more? I mean, we haven't seen a black woman or I don't even know if we've seen a woman of color yet. I don't know. I kind of feel like I need to see the writer's room first Yeah. uh, before I make that determination. I am so on that right now. It's like you could sprinkle black people here and there, you know, a little pepper and a sea of salt. But Mm -hmm. I really want to see who's in the writer's room. I want to see whether or not they're making real changes um, and whether or not they're really willing. Because the truth of the matter is storytelling becomes so much greater when it is diverse. Mm -hmm. So because we come from all kinds of cultures and all kinds of backgrounds and living situations. And if you have all of that come together collectively, the collective imagination of that kind of writer's room, the possibilities are endless. We know the truth is out there. We just got to get to it in the writer's room. (laughs) I like that. See what I did there? (laughs) (laughs) Talia, what are your thoughts on that about the Talia? See, I knew I was going to screw up your name eventually. What are your thoughts about the diversity on the show or its lack thereof? You know, I actually didn't start thinking about that until this reboot. But growing up, it was very obviously not diverse. I really don't know 
I would love to see diversity. And I guess it's, I agree with Karan that we would need to look in the, the writer's room first to see how, I guess for how authentic it's going to be. You know, you can just, you can put in the, the token character, you know, that gives it some splash of diversity, I suppose. But I kind of feel like just to keep it consistent, why, why at this point keep going? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I felt like Joel McHale's character could have been a person of color. I don't even know how he got in that show, you know, but <laughs> where that dude come from? <laughs> well, you know, you know, here's my. Thought. I heard he's they, a huge uh, fan though, so probably he probably lobbied really hard for that role. Begged his agent to harass whoever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say, you know, if well, I guess because they'd bring back, back Annette Gish, but if they brought back Reyes, right, right. But if they're being as consistent as they have been, they'd bring her back, not somebody else. Well, I heard they're bringing back Doggett, but are they bringing back Agent Reyes as well? I heard yeah, they were bringing back Reyes, and not, I didn't hear anything about Robert Patrick. Oh, okay. I don't know, but I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Then I got that confused. All right. Hmm. Interesting. I could be wrong. Can we, back- I- can we go back to the fact that Skinner can get it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All of it. Twice. <laughs> On a Tuesday. <laughs> and a Wednesday. And a Wednesday. And a Thursday. In the office. At home. In there, the car. There is something the- that's very appealing about him. And I really can't put a finger on it, but there is something that's just like, yeah, I, he's, he's really hot. I think after, confidence? after nine years. Yeah aged very well there are some men who age very well and some men who just age and i just think he is just a lot manlier he just mm-hmm. like testosterone was coming through the tv i don't know yep i'm perplexed <laughs> and he's such a nice like grandpa dude in real life but i don't know he he puts on that suit and he's in the office i'm like damn skinner <laughs> <laughs> it was nice to see the pencils though yeah. yeah, that was a nice homage. Yeah, indeed. The pencils were still there. Yep. Yep. So what are your expectations for the series? Do you have any predictions or what do you hope to, to get out of it as it wraps towards the end? I think at some point Scully is going to make a connection between her personal power and and her science brain in her womanity. I think at some point she is going to end up being, I would like to see her end up being some terrestrial supreme being that explains her brain. I don't know. I would just really like to see her character take a turn into a different kind of power, a different, a different shift of power, so to speak. We know her as brave and strong and, and she can shoot and that's great, but I'd really like to see her embrace her femininity not in the terms of being pink and soft but in the terms of wonder woman with the with the bracelets kind of strong i want to see her fight i want to see her fight (laughs) (laughs) i want to be great fight yeah it's like because she always fights with she always fights with her intellect but i want to see her i want to see her fought a lot she was the one, like, in the entire, I think, the first two seasons, it was just an endless stream of Mulder getting captured, Gully having to get a soldier and have him at gunpoint to get Mulder back, and then kicking people and tackling people 
while Mulder's running around and saying, I need to find the truth. Scully's the one cleaning up bodies and taking people down. He would have been dead like 15 times over without her there to save his butt. <laughs> yeah, but, even, but even in that, she's saving him. I want to see her save herself. Mm, true. I want to see her really get down and dirty and save herself. Because I want to save the world. Him. Yes, that'd be great. Yeah. I think I have things that more that I don't want to see than things that I do want to see. Like, what I'm, is it you don't want to see? I'm happy to see anything. I heard rumors that they're going to do a sequel to Home. And that is still the episode that bothers me the most. Like, it mm. physically makes me ill. And I don't want to see any more. <laughs> I'm good on that one episode that they gave us. I don't want to see a sequel to that. So that and no Samantha. Do not rewrite that history again. That's really all I ask for. Yeah. Any final thoughts about the show? Anybody else? I'm excited to see what else they have to give. Me too. I mean, they got a good start. Yep. Shirtless Skinner. Shirtless Skinner. <laughs> there is so much Skinner thirst on this segment. I am <laughs> I am amazed. I would love to <laughs> I was not expecting that, actually. Right. It came out of nowhere. <laughs> well, we didn't expect Skinner to look like that either. <laughs> right? Right? Awesome. Mm. Well, thank you, Mel. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Karan. Thank you, Talia, for coming and chatting about all things X-Files. And X-Files airs every Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on Fox. So check that out. And check that out with us on Twitter. We use the hashtag DatX. So join us as we watch and finish off the last round of this miniseries of The X-Files. Thanks, everybody. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you.